Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Slapcast. This is episode 18 of our coverage of the 2023-24 season. I'm your host, Gage, as usual, and this week we have returned with verve, vivacity, and vibrance. And I'm pleased to announce in that exact fashion that I'm joined by Reese, who I'm sure was inspired by Martin Odegaard at the weekend to pick up photography as his new hobby. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Reese. Yeah, I definitely have. No. Um, (laughs) Yeah, glad to be here. We're also joined by Ethan, who needs no invitation whatsoever to pick up a camera, as he's something of a professional, it may be known. Uh, So hello, Ethan. Hello, Gage. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing quite well. Uh, Of course, that uh, indicates that we are indeed without Josh, which I'm quite saddened to announce, but he is the busiest man alive. He's out cavorting and engaging in many auspicious activities, so uh, he was unable to join us this evening, but we'll have to make do without him. So luckily, we have a very adept replacement in his stead in the form of Ethan, who has concocted some sort of question of the day for us to answer. Yeah, so where we're from, the weather's uh, been pretty crap, but the last week or two, it's been a little bit better. So I've started hearing the ice cream truck around here again. So uh, if y'all ever stopped by the ice cream truck, what would be your go-to ice cream truck pick? I'm a classic man. I think a lot of people would go for some kind of like you know, ice pop or popsicle. I'm not a popsicle guy, so I would just go for a ice cream sandwich. I have. Can I give two? I'm giving two. So the one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one that I actually got from the ice cream truck. So this is my real answer: is those SpongeBob pops. Yeah. You know the SpongeBob yeah. pops. Yeah, that's the one that I would actually get from uh, from the ice cream truck, which is like I think it's banana flavored, maybe the yellow part, and then it's yeah. got like. Some kind of gum. something, but yeah, it's the like gum, gum is his eyes were eyes. Yeah, his eyes were eyes. Yeah. What a, <laughs> what a statement by me. But uh yeah, then my honorable mention, which I don't even know if you can get these at the ice cream truck, but I think like you we used to have them at our high school cafeteria. Those strawberry shortcake bars, the mm, uh yeah. the like uh kind of pink ice cream with the like breading on the outside. Yeah, I think they were at yeah. ice cream trucks. Yeah, those are those are just, I could easily buy a box of those today and go through the entire box in like one sitting, which is insane, <laughs> but I could seriously do that because they're so good. Right. Right. Um, Like Gage, I always picked one of the character uh, like ice cream pops and I don't think they do them anymore just because it's like the franchise is not as new anymore, even though I had a movie come out last year, but I would always pick like the Ninja Turtle character pop. Oh, dude. Yeah. Yeah, that just, movie was actually great too. The, it was a great movie just too. Came out. I I rewatched it the other day, but yeah, I just I enjoyed it. I didn't even care how it tasted. I was just like, I got I got them on a stick. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's topical by you as well because we just talked about which Ninja Turtle each of us four would be as well in the group chat. Had yeah. some disagree, some level of disagreement, but yeah, interesting one. So yeah. Well, thank you for that uh, brief expedition through our childhood sweet treats as you might call it um (laughs) (laughs) and this week for our mystery segment we've kind of picked up the mystery segment once again as we had a little break because of the uh broken game week and the fa cup uh fixtures which kind of stifled our ability to do a traditional mystery segment in terms of the fact that we didn't have too much action to discuss however we've decided that it's the proper time to go back to our roots with the mystery segment. And in so doing, we've returned to a fan favorite, which was Champs and Chumps. Yes, you heard me right. It's time for Champs and Chumps. 
We've got a lot to say about the exploits of various parties this week, and that starts, of course, with our champ. So I will actually volunteer to go first and kick us off with my champ, which is uh, a man who you might know as Cote d'Ivoire's starting right back, captain, interim manager, and Spurs legend, Serge Aurier, who has just guided his nation to the final of the African Cup of Nations uh, with their victory overnight or uh, their victory over South Africa. So incredible scenes uh, because the Ivorian Football Federation decided to sack their manager after the third game in the group when they had lost two of their three games, only to get through on the third place ruling based on the events uh, that occurred in another group. So they've somehow managed to stumble their way to the final of the tournament where the greatest manager that Africa has ever seen, Serge Aurier, will be guiding them, no doubt, to lifting the trophy. So that's my champ for the week. Uh, I'll give my champ second. Uh, I want to preface this isn't based on the most recent result. I'm not trying to poke fun. This is just a pure respect basis. I don't think we've had a podcast since the news came out that Jurgen Klopp is going to be leaving Liverpool Football yes, Club. So I, I've chosen my champ as Jurgen Klopp, um, just to kind of pay some homage to him um, and the fantastic job he's done at the club. Really changed their culture as well. It's definitely been something inspiring to watch um, as my own club was going through a rebuild for sure. Um, and yeah, they're just, I mean, one of the best sides in Europe for sure. You know, all respect to him. Yeah, for great, sure. great point by you. I mean, he's been the manager there for a good chunk of when we started watching. So definitely respect. Um, with me, I kind of cheated. I, I think too. Uh, I went with Arsenal just because I think it was huge to get a result against Liverpool who had that momentum of knowing that Klopp is going to leave at the end of the season. So I feel like they definitely have something to play for. So going up against them and getting a, a big result, I think is huge and definitely puts them in a good spot for the title. Uh, but then I went with Luton just because, you know, I'm eight goals and eight goals and uh, two games against two great sides as well as uh, is pretty inspiring. And so I wish uh, other teams uh, would get the memo, but we'll talk about that later. Was that the first game that had occurred since uh, they announced that or since he announced he wasn't going to be coming back? Next They've year? had one game before. They've had one. Oh, they um, have it was a big result. No. Or was I it think, Premier League? It was a Premier League game, I think. I'll pull it up real quick. I'm being fast. Well, maybe it was a pickup, actually. I thought I thought they oh, beat, they beat Norwich. They beat Norwich 5 0. I know no, that. They had one other but, game. I think okay, they had a Premier yeah. League game. Uh, yeah, they were at Anfield when they beat Chelsea 4 1, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was because, a game in there. Because I remember all the cameras were on Klopp in the double. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up because you are right. We have not actually spoken about it. And I think maybe it's probably worth giving just another line on him real quick before we move on to the chumps, just because it feels he feels I mean, obviously, this era has been completely defined by Klopp versus Pep, uh, you know, both of the great managers who go toe to toe. Both have won a Champions League in that span. Both have won a Premier League or several in Pep's case in that span. And it just feels like um, I mean, it's it's cliche, but it feels like the end of an era feels like the Prem definitely will not be the same without him in it. Um, say what you want about his antics and his crying about the referees and his et cetera, et cetera. But I think the Prem will definitely be a worse place for having Jurgen Klopp not in it for sure. And I, I do want to say I really respect the decision to just leave and take some time off. I think uh, that's probably, you know, very like uh, grounded of him, I'll say. 
for him to yeah. make that decision. So, yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I got a little sad. Obviously, we'll talk about the actual result of the Arsenal-Liverpool game, but it was, I had a moment where the game ended and I was like, man, this is the last time I'll get to watch Arsenal v. Klopp. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, obviously, we'll still play Liverpool, but it, yeah, it won't be the same uh, for sure. And the, I mean, especially recently, I've really enjoyed the Arteta-Klopp matchup. So it's kind of sad. That's the last time it'll happen. Yeah, and like I said before, he's just been involved a good majority of the time we've been watching. So it'll be weird to see who they bring in next. I know we kind of discussed it topically, but you know, yeah. we'll have to sit down and think about it. Yeah, and aside from all of his impact at Liverpool on the pitch, I think off the pitch he had even more of an impact. Like Reese mentioned, for one thing, he completely turned the culture of the club around. He embodies Liverpool's ethos to a T. But even on a more personal level than that, I think he's just seems to be a genuinely good human. Like I know there was that kind of clip that they released pretty recently of him meeting a young Irish fan uh, who, you know, was wheelchair bound and, um, you know, had kind of talked about some of his struggles with that in life and uh, the way Klopp, you know, just kind of interacts with him and um, just shows so much kindness to him and, and spends, you know, five, 10 minutes having a, a conversation with him. I, you know, I was really moved by that. I think just seeing, you know, the power that this sport can have to galvanize people and Klopp really embodies that as well. So all rivalries aside, I think the respect that he's given is is 100% due. So, all right. Uh, in a vast contrast to what we were just stating, let's move on to the chump, chump of the week. And that is going to be, well, let's go in reverse order. We'll start with Ethan. You're already shaking your head. You just can't believe it. Yeah, Um. I'm not going to go into it because obviously I'll have a section about it later, but uh, the main one uh, that I went for is Crystal Palace, my team, but Roy Hodgson specifically for bringing on probably our best player this whole season who's been dealing with a hamstring issue, already 3-0 down at halftime for only him to come off 10 minutes later. Knowing that he was already struggling with it previously, Everyone on Twitter was blowing up about it. Like, if he does this and he is absolutely brain dead and lost all credibility as a manager. Uh, Reese was watching this game with me and he saw me go absolutely bananas when they uh, had that happen. So, Roy, for forgetting to be, even though he's probably the, one of the older Premier League managers, losing all sense of managing in that one span of time. Not yeah, only that, I, he's um, now out for two months. Yeah. At least say. Yep. It's a shit show. I think to no one's surprise, considering Ethan said I watched the game with him, um, I've gone for a double manager for champion jump, and my my chump is also Roy Hodgson. <laughs> um, yeah, just really embarrassing stuff. I think maybe a little credit. I don't know. I think he surely has to know Elise is injured. Obviously, there's other people involved, like the medical staff, that surely, I mean, somebody messed up, obviously. But I think the context of it being a rival and being immediately following what seemed like a positive win um, where, you know, you're really looking at some kind of hopefully perspective change, uh, putting out a really disappointing lineup for this game too. Obviously we'll talk about it more uh, when we get to the game, but yeah, he's my chump. I mean, the the more crazy thing about it is that, you know, we've been dealing with it the whole season is that, you know, we're speeding up the injury process because we rely on Eze and Elise so much. Like we've had to have Eze play at 50%, Elise play at 
only for them to be out longer. As I didn't even travel for this game because he, I think he hurt himself again in the win against uh, Sheffield United. So it's just whether that's Roy's decision or not, he still put him out knowing that he's been dealing with these things at uh, on ha on at halftime. So yeah, it's just a mess. Well, I've gone a different direction with my chump. It's also related to something that occurred from my club, but I'm going to get into it here just a little bit now. I've selected a group of people who exhibited some serious chump qualities over the weekend, as you might expect. Uh, and I wanted to start off this analysis by selecting a quote from esteemed German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, where he states that in individuals, insanity is rare, but in the group, it is the rule. And never was this more exemplified by a group of people than the 40,000 shit munchers who turned up to Goodison Park on Saturday at lunchtime. First of all, they, you know, continue to bring out these uh, fabricated yellow cards at the 10th minute for their 10-point deduction, saying the Premier League is corrupt, saying all this. Okay, listen. Is it true that the Premier League has taken absurdly long with the investigation into Man City, the charges are much more serious, and they need to be addressed as soon as possible? Yes. Is it also true that Everton Football Club wasted a billion pounds on dog shit players over the last five to seven years? Uh, yes, it's also true. So maybe, you know, remove the log in your own eye before removing the plank in that of your opponent or whatever the Bible says about that. Um, incredible behavior by them. Not only that, the fact that they continue to hold up these cards at any at any moment in the game where the referee makes a decision. If it's not penalty automatic goal to Everton. They all hold up the cards stating that the Premier League is corrupt. Unbelievable behavior. And throughout the game, the atmosphere was horrible. They were booing every time anyone touched the ball. Not a single, you know, like moment where I was thinking, oh, I'd love to be an Everton player right now playing in this atmosphere. And then of course, when the last minute winner goes in, they act like uh, they are the Paragon Saints of, you know, curing cancer via a football match or whatever that may be. So just bizarre behavior from the Everton faithful. Um, I'm prepared to field comments. Everton fans, get in the comments and tell me why you're all so delusional. Um, please let us know. We'd love to. <laughs> I'd love to have a conversation about it. Um, anyway, I'm I'm bigging it up a little bit, but they did really get under my skin. And of course, conceding a last minute equalizer really just doubled the <laughs> amount of cortisol that spiked in my body about that. Um, so I just wanted to let them know that I really will enjoy watching them play in the championship or not watching them play in the championship next season. So shout out to That's Everton. Funny. It's funny texting you about it because I was so early about this game that I had to watch later. I was watching the Brighton or not the Brighton, the Everton and Tottenham game as well. And it's funny because, I mean, I experienced them, too, when we were, I guess they beat us to stay up uh, in Vieira's first season. Oh, yeah. and they charged the field. kicked a fan. Yeah. I mean, say what you want about them, but the way they play football is like it, it warrants how they you know, I guess not warrants, but, you know, it exemplifies how they feel because it's like they're so physical, but they're very quick to, you know, throw themselves to the ground. I'm not even ashamed to say that that's what they do. So anyway, well, let's let's get into how they play, because that's our first game on the on the game reviews. It It is indeed. And this my submission of this game is basically twofold. One is that Spurs have probably been do something like this for a while. I think um, the Brentford game kind of showed that we lacked control in the final moments of the game. We obviously gave up a freak goal in that game to uh, Ivan Tony when Udogi's back, back, back pass uh, failed to acknowledge the fact that Ivan Tony was standing behind the goalkeeper at that time. 
And even in some of the games before that, Man United, we almost gave up a last-minute goal to McTominay's header, and there's one more that I'm forgetting where we nearly threw the result away at the end, and it's escaping me at the moment. Oh, Burnley in the FA Cup, yeah. Uh, we had the goalkeeper actually had a header in the last minute from a corner that just went wide. So uh, we almost concede, we've almost conceded a number of last-minute goals, and I think it, it has been coming. That is one aspect of it, is I think Spurs kind of struggle with the final moments of the game, uh, managing you know, their heads, managing the play style and that kind of thing. Uh, the other thing that I've taken from this game is that we basically just got diced. Um, yeah. Set, set <laughs> piece mode. Is, yeah, exactly. Set piece mode and uh, tactics of disrupting the game, tactical fouling, um, lots of just, and I, I'm going to say this word again, but this time it's not being derogatory, just lots of shit munching, like lots of, you know, stirring up the pot, winding up our players, kind of taking forever to do anything. Um very and then hit you know break on the counter press high don't give the team a lot of time to to um loiter on the ball i would say so i think that's more or less what it boils down to one talking point that's going to come from this game and that i'm probably going to have to bring up again later this season and that recent i actually already talked about at one stage uh before the show was this new theme of um goalkeeper immunity seems to be dead in the Premier League, or not all the way dead, but at least somewhat dead, in in the fact that Spurs have conceded la or late goals in two games now where, well, actually, it wasn't necessarily late goals. Spurs have conceded goals in two games now where uh, the strategy at uh, the time of taking the corner, or I think in Man City's case, it was actually a close set piece, but um, the, the tactic is just to stick a large person right on top of Vicario and obstruct him from being able to jump and make up ground to claim high. And I kind of immediately took to the, took to the skies, if you will, on my hovercraft of complaining and said, how is this legal? How has this happened? You know, why is this not a foul? There's obstruction. There's this, there's that. And I do believe that still. However, uh, Reese informed me that this has actually been something that's been going on, uh, quite frequently in the Premier League, so much so that Arsenal have actually had to ad adopt the tap the god dang it adopt the tactic. Yeah, I was basically mentioning um, last year there was a game against Villa where I vividly remember they scored a direct corner, and um, the way it happened was that someone literally was rugby tackling Ramsdale in the box, arms around him, pulling him. He could not move, and at the time, you know, I had the same reaction. I was really mad. But since then, you know, that wasn't called a foul. So, I mean, we're Arsenal have become very good at corners, especially this year. And you look at something we do on every corner, it's usually Ben White. He is just standing in front of the goalie and obstructing them. So, it's, you know, it's kind of like a you can't beat him, join him scenario. I think some of them, I'm not going to try and say, you know, I, I don't I don't know how I could be the decider on which ones. But I think maybe sometimes it's not a foul. It's, it's kind of hard to tell, but it's especially hard to tell because goalkeepers have had this kind of immunity for so long, like any kind of impeding in the box has always just been immediately a foul. So it's kind of hard to tell. I think they are trending and being somewhat consistent to where they're allowing this, but it's just kind of weird. Um, Cause I don't, I don't really know how they rule it. Um, Cause obviously sometimes you'll get, you know, and now it would probably be the odd one out, but you'll get the decision where they do give goalkeeper immunity. So I, I don't know. I think the way to combat this is probably twofold. Um, first of all, 
I think one way you could do it is to have Vicario instruct Vicario to just sell it. Like, yeah, do the whole action of making a very high jump, trying to claim and then kind of go over the back of the defender. And at that point, if the goalkeeper goes up and then is taken out from below, Harry Kane used to do this all the time. Like if the goalkeeper is then taken out from below, like you're never going to get that goal given if the goalkeeper's, you know, flying all over the place because he's gone over the back of the defender. The second way to combat this, I think I saw someone bring up is what Brentford do to combat this actually. And that is literally to uh, have a couple players that are basically assigned to be the secret service for the goalkeeper. (laughs) Basically just stand around him and make sure that no one, you know, clear the path essentially for him to come claim the ball and just kind of physically box out any the whoever the marker is that's coming in to to kind of I don't know I guess obstruct the goalkeeper um and I think that could be a method of success what I will say is that method scares me slightly more because I could see an instance where like if they're giving this or if they're I could see an instance where that results in a penalty being given yeah. the other way right and so that that gives me slight concern but I think those are essentially the two ways that you combat this so, uh, what else from this game? I think Richarlison's performance is definitely noteworthy. Aside from the fact that he has nine goals in eight Premier League games uh, in his last eight appearances, it's interesting to see the turnaround of a player who, you know, <laughs> last season it looked like he couldn't even, you know, run correctly or make passes correctly or do anything. And this season he's scoring these ridiculous first-time finishes. I don't know which goal is more impressive, the the first goal, which is a half volley off the ground, hit at pace with his weaker foot that he just, you know, sweeps into the top corner. Or is it the the second goal where Madison puts it on a platter for him and he, you know, curls it in postage stamp? Um, and to be honest with you, at the point of the second goal too, like Spurs were being dominated all over the pitch. Spurs were nowhere to be found in the game. And Richarlison just steps up with a moment of quality at, Dare I say it was very Harry Kane-esque. I think in recent games, Richarlison has actually been dropping into midfield to win loose balls and go challenge for aerials and stuff. And he's a little bit like Harry Kane if Harry Kane was, I'll say rough around the edges, but very rough around the edges in the sense that he's kind of this lumbering, just physical beast. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. And, but now he's added this element of technicality to his game and he seems to have uh, created, you know, some semblance of confidence for himself. Notably after he had surgery to <laughs> what Spurs fans are calling fix his dick. Uh, I think it was actually more like a surgery to repair a muscle in his groin, but um, Spurs fans are saying it's that meme where it's like the, the guy with the beard and it's like, you literally changed my life. And then yeah. it's the surgeon, and he says, "I'm just the surgeon who fixed Richarlison's dick." Like that's <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the meme circulating right now on Spurs Twitter. So, yeah, that's a noteworthy performance. And um, I don't really take too much from this. It's annoying that we didn't get get a point, but I think a lot of our players are not fit at the moment. Bentenker definitely does not look fit. He's come back into the team after his long term injury, but. You can tell he's still building up fitness. He's still kind of struggling to to shave off some of that uh, lethargy, I'll call it, from being out you know, for so long. Madison probably shouldn't have played as long as he did. I think he looks very uh, unfit, which makes sense given the fact that he's been thrown back into the mix. 
we've had a quick succession of games as well. And due to, the, due to uh, our midfielders being either in Africa, in Asia, or uh, injured, he's been forced to play more than he would want to. So um, on that note, by the way, about Africa and Asia, all of the Spurs representatives at those tournaments have now been eliminated. So uh, Pape Matarsar was actually back for this game, and he made a brief cameo. And then uh, following that game, Izbisuma and Mali were knocked out of the African Cup of Nations, so they'll be back. And then um, South Korea, with a major upset, lost to Jordan in the semifinals of the Asian Cup, which means Sun will be coming back. They will all be available for selection against Brighton uh, on Saturday, which has been confirmed by Ange Postacoglu. Now, whether or not they'll start is a, probably a different question, but they will at least be available for selection. So that is some good news as the Spurs squad continues to bolster. And really, I think it's just a matter of time before we get back to what we saw at the beginning of the year. But um, yeah, I think that's basically where I'm at with Spurs at the moment. So I had a couple of points I wanted to bring up. First one, a question. Um, Involving obviously two goals for Everton from set pieces, um, a couple other set pieces that looked pretty scary. Is this a matter of Daesh being good at coaching set pieces, or is there a worry with how y'all are defending them? A bit of both, I think. I think the strategy they obviously had identified this weakness in Vicario, where um, he finds it difficult to maneuver through a crowded box, and in so doing, they made sure that every single corner that was taken basically ended up inside the six yard box directly on top of Vicario um, so that he wasn't able to generate a lot of times what he does with a high claim is he generates a lot of momentum and then jumps and kind of catches the ball in stride. Um, and so putting the ball, you know, within the six yard, the confines of the six yard box definitely eliminates that element for him. And I think it is definitely a weakness in his game of the fact that he's not really able to make a high claim right now without that running start. Is that something he could probably be coached and improved on? I would say, yeah. Um, so that's one element that we'll have to wait on and is just see if the goalkeeping coach can kind of work with him and uh, improve that aspect of his game. Element number two is I think Spurs haven't really faced teams this season that have done this whole obstructing the goalkeeper tactic. Um, as far as I know, the city game where they didn't do it very often, but they did do it, you know, once when it counted. And then the Everton game where they literally did it, as you mentioned on every set piece, I think Spurs just haven't had time or haven't properly been able to integrate a solution to that. And I expect that they will. Uh, Mila Yednak, former uh, Crystal Palace legend is actually our defensive set piece coach. So I have no doubt that he'll be on the training ground this week. Um, kind of working through some options of what we can do if stuff like that continues to happen. And I anticipate that it will, because if you're an opposition manager watching the tapes from these games, you got to be thinking that's a weakness that we can exploit. Um, and so I think Yednak and co will definitely be aware of that and they'll be working together on the training ground. So I think there is a worry, but I'm relatively confident that because this is a new issue that's just sprung up, it's the case that we have not yet had time to address said issue. And I think you might see a couple more goals in the coming games that we give up that look like, you know, the narrative is going to continue. Spurs, oh, they can't defend set pieces. Vicario can't come for high claims. And then it'll go away. I think that's kind of what that's going to be the timeline of events for me. Uh, another point I just had to touch on uh, Madison actually was something I noticed, at least in the second goal, 
that I thought was just something worth noting was as kind of a side effect of him being so good at creating chances, he's now drawing a lot of players to him when he's on the ball. And that's definitely opening up space for other players, which when you're committing so many bodies forward, drawing defenders away is not only leaving one man open, it's leaving, you know, two or three men open. Um, and we saw that with with, with Richarlison's second goal, because uh, he had quite a bit of space to, you know, take a second, set himself and, um, you know, curl it into the top corner. So I think uh, definitely as he's more and more fit, that's something that'll that'll become more of a factor later on. And maybe this was happening at Leicester, but I just hadn't really noticed it until um, that second goal. Yeah, and I think that factor actually increases by two when you add Sun back into the mix, because I think that's part of his appeal to the team is that he is a figure who has so much positional gravity in the sense that defenders sort of err on the side of being closer to him rather than closer to everyone else because he's the most dangerous player. So, I mean, if we can double that effect, both of them playing, you know, Madison's the left-sided number eight, if you'll call it that, and then Sun obviously plays on the left. So that could open up some serious space on the right uh, for Spurs going forward if if that trend continues. So, yeah, good point, good point. Um, Any final points on Spurs-Everton? Let's uh let's go ahead and move on to the next game in the mix. And I believe it is time, Ethan, to get into this uh Crystal Palace nonsense that did occur this weekend. Unfortunately, I'm not even sure where you start with this. Well, I'll go back to what you just said about Mila Yedinak and his name being mentioned. Probably the one of the players who knew what it was like to represent the shirt and die for the shirt. Not that he died actually, but you know, <laughs> willing to put his life on the line for the shirt. Um yeah, because it I feel like there was no one in that team this past uh, this past game we had that would be up for the shirt, uh, and it looked like all the Brighton players were up for it. But going past that, it was just an utter shit show. Um, I mean, everything that I've mentioned previously in other podcasts had happened again, and I keep thinking to myself, you know, it can't get any worse, but it keeps getting worse every time, and I'm always, I you know, I, I want to say I'm surprised, but I'm not. You know, the worst just keeps happening, so... Uh, I guess since the last podcast, we also had a game against Brentford, or not Brentford, uh, Sheffield United, and managed to get a win. And so that was, you know, good to go in the other direction for once and get three points. But, you know, towards the end, they took off Elise and Eze for injury precaution, and we looked very bad towards the end, and I really thought we were going to give it up. So it made us realize how much we rely on our star players like them in to, to deliver every time. And so the fact that, you know, we started without both of them in this game, I just knew that it was all going to fall apart. Roy did it again. He started Schlupp and, and Will Hughes, which is something that, you know, every palace fan hates to see before the game. You know, we literally got the team sheet, saw them and we all just lost hope and realized that we were not going to get anything from this game, which is annoying because we, this was a, First start for Daniel Munoz since joining in the winter. And, you know, it's just frustrating knowing that, you know, we're trying to improve these areas, but we still can't trust Roy to make the right decisions to give our attack any sort of, you know, inspiration. So um, that was, you know, very annoying to see. Uh, another thing that, that bothers me is that I used to go on about how good our defense is. But recently, it's been very bad to the point where it, it totally negates what we do in a game. You know, we set up defensively to kind of absorb pressure and then attack at the last minute. But um, recently, in the past five games, we've conceded five goals before the 15th minute. 
being that every team in the last five games has scored one before the 15th minute. So I just don't trust our defense anymore. And the fact that that's literally our tactic to sit back and absorb pressure means that we're going to do that even though we're already down. So it's just like, what's the point of that? Um, and it goes back. He got injured in this game too, right? That's true. He came off. I want to say it was like halfway in between the first half. Um, he came off and Richards, who was playing awfully, went from midfield uh, to his natural position at center back, bringing on our other winner signing, Adam Morton, who is very good, very talented, but, you know, getting thrown right into the fire, uh, you know, when we're already down, I think it was 2-0 at this point, or 3-0, no, it was 3-0, I think, because, you know, we, no, well, I, and it, that doesn't I matter. Those two goals happen right after each other. Right, I was going to say, it couldn't be 2-0, because they happen right after each other, but I think he was already on at that point. So he was already dealing with the stress of, you know, chasing the game and, you know, just running around like I had this chicken uh, in that span. So it was unfortunate that Munoz and Morton got kind of a baptism of fire, if you will, just not even given a chance to, you know, I've heard Munoz is very good attacking wise, one of the best attacking right backs in Belgium, just not even given a chance to show that when we're sitting back defensively and he's probably like shell shocked, like, what are we doing? Like, we can't even get an attack going. So I'm sure that was frustrating for him. Uh, the fact that Roy is still in charge is beyond me. Cause I, I think I don't, might've been halftime, but I looked at Reese and I said, he'll definitely be gone at this point. And Gage ended up texting me as well saying that surely that has to be it for Roy. And I was like, this should be, this should be the time, but it still hasn't happened. And we're a few days removed from it. So I don't know what it's going to take to get him gone. But I want to know because it needs to happen. I've seen relegation, probably. Yeah, which is it's going to be too late. But it's frustrating on the fact that we're in such a terrible position now that there's like it's going to be so hard to get a manager to want to come in and do something when our best players are injured. We're on a bad run of form. And, you know, with the time left we have in the season, it could easily be relegation. And that's just something that people don't want on their resume. So. That's another frustrating thing. And then going back to what I already mentioned, Elise coming on when the game's already gone at halftime, in him not even being involved in the play at all, just him running around got him injured. So the fact that we've had so many injuries, but also a lot of them being like long-term injuries like hamstrings and Achilles injuries, it's frustrating. So it's just frustrating to see because it's like, you know, we we put so much time and effort into into this club and, you know, the the badge behind the club is or not that that has any sort of like meaning or of anything, but like Crystal Palace has always been known for passion. You know, when you think of brilliant fans, you think of Palace fans, and it's just like it's just not something we deserve. I mean, it, it's becoming a point where so much is happening outside of our control that it feels like it's not our club anymore. It, it's not like we can like escape to watch them every week and experience joy when we're losing 4-1 to our rivals it's just it, it's heartbreaking and so it's just hard to kind of you know look forward to it every week when something like that is just not contributing as it used to be so definitely missing that old thing uh it was funny when i had the chance at work to just be be with myself i ended up writing down how we've been playing on on paper and versus how we should be playing so i'm not going to go through it but the fact that I'm sitting here thinking I could do a better job than Roy Hodgson is crazy to me. So, you know, Steve Parrish, I know you're not going to do it, but sign me up because I know how to turn this team around. Because obviously, 
Roy doesn't know what he's going to do. Because we literally brought on, you know, Franca. We brought on Ozo. And, you know, even though Franca's not an academy player, he looked so much up for this game than anyone else. So, you know, I'm ex fully expecting us to go up against Chelsea, who are also in a crappy position right now. Just dropped a clanger to Wolves, which we'll talk about here in a second. But we'll probably make them look like Champions League winners, which they are, but not, you know, with the form they've been in recently. So, you know, terrible loss against our rivals, and it's just head our hanger heads in in shame. So, nothing new, but still annoying. The fact about you brought up a good point about you actually think you could do a better job than Roy right now, and I think generally when you hear that, you're like, oh, classic armchair manager, classic you know cornflake cruncher, whatever. But <laughs> bringing Elise on in that situation genuinely might be it's up there with the worst managerial decision i've ever seen it yeah. is genuinely up there and that alone should get you fired but you know you could do anything and get and still have a job here at palace so i'm surprised you know their inbox is not filled with resumes right now of normal people like myself i might send it i might send my resume over there so yeah it's just it a lot of it doesn't make any sense and it's getting to the point where it's just like he's just kind of doing this to you know save face you know, he's like, I brought on Elise, you know, you know, and I'm like, you frustrate me, dude. You frustrate me so hard. You, It's like we're at a point now, like, even though these players are like our best and, you know, they basically carry it, carry us the whole game. It's like we can get them back and fully fit if you'll just give these other players a chance who are hungry. I mean, literally, like I just said, France it looked great when he came on. Ahamada, who joined last winter, uh, two seasons ago has not really been given a chance to do anything, even though he was a regular starter in the Bundesliga. It's just like, it doesn't make any sense to me. He hasn't given anyone under 21 a start this season. So it's just him being a stingy idiot. And frankly, every palace fan wants him gone. And the fact that he's not gone is, is beyond me. A couple lines on Brighton real quick. I won't spend too long about it. Um, but obviously they were coming off pretty bad loss the week prior as well. So obviously Deserby said something to get them riled back up. I think we kind of mentioned it uh, last time we had a podcast, but they have quietly been doing pretty poorly, um, at least compared to what we expected, I think largely due to their presence in Europe. But um, we're able to rally for this game, just looked more up for it. Um, I wanted to drop a line on João Pedro because uh, I've been – I've mentioned it before. I was excited um, for to see him play in this side, and I think he's just gotten better and better every week. Um, especially like physically, I think he he's, you know, he he just seems like uh, a stronger player as well, which I think is something he didn't have at least when he was at uh, uh, Watford. But um, yeah, I was very very impressed again with his uh, display in this game. They've kind of been exhibiting some they being Brighton have kind of exhibited some uh, Jekyll and Hydeness this season. Cause you go look back through their results. I mean, this, this dichotomy here is just a perfect example of it. They get smashed four nil by Luton and then, you know, turn around and beat palace four one. You know, you look back earlier in the season, they got dominated by Arsenal. And then the next game they beat Spurs putting, go, you know, they went four four nil up in that game. You go back earlier than that in the season um, and they lost 6-1 to Villa, but they still put together some decent results. They beat Newcastle, they drew with Chelsea, they drew with Man United. So um, just something of a Jekyll and Hyde team this season. And it's interesting. I wonder how much of that is down to the fact that 
Deserby has kind of introduced his own version of Pep Roulette this season due yeah. to, I suppose, the fixture congestion that comes with being in Europe, like you mentioned, or truthfully, he kind of was doing that at the end of last season anyway. So I don't know how much of it is down to that or down to just Deserby's personal preference. But yeah, just an interesting point, a team to keep an eye on for the back half I of mean, the season, especially as Europe comes back around. And I, I'm going to give all credit to them because I think they did really well in the game that obviously matters to all the fans and surely the players, but according to not Palace, but uh, I I think we just, we're doing a great job of making all the other teams look really well. I mean, the fact that we were chasing the game against Sheffield United with them scoring, you know, to get ahead both times was really annoying. Uh, and I think we got really lucky to, to win that game. So we, I think we just did a great job of making Brighton look very, very good, even though I know they had the momentum to turn it around after a terrible result against Luton. So I think that I think they'll go on to keep keep doing better. But I think a largely part of their performance was just us being so disjointed tactically and so shot in spirit. So. Yeah. Well, Ethan alluded to it earlier, but now it's time to come on to a result that seems to be all too common this season for Chelsea uh, is that they've once again been dominated by a team who at this point in their development, you would expect them to at least be at the table with, <laughs> and I'm not even sure they were that in this game at Wolves. And it's becoming such a factor in Chelsea's season that I actually am not entirely sure how to diagnose what's going on with them. Aside from the obvious things being, They've introduced way too many players way too quickly. They've spent too much money on various players. Is Pochettino the right man for the job? They don't have a striker who can finish. They don't, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. But I wonder how much, you know, Pochettino has come under scrutiny in recent days. And they did just get a win in the FA Cup replay against Aston Villa, which took place today at time of recording. But I'm curious to see your prognosis on Chelsea at this point. Either of you, we'll go to Reese yeah. quickly. Um, I actually, I think I have a diagnosis because uh, I was thinking about this too. I'm going to compare them to three clubs who have recently on, undergone rebuilds. Those being Arsenal, Tottenham, Liverpool. Obviously, Liverpool being the latest. Um, you look at what those three managers have done. Obviously, Tottenham being the newest, but you know. You've got Ange, you've got Arteta, you've got Klopp. I think before anything happened tactically, there was an obvious effort to change the culture of the club. And when I look at what Poch has done so far, I think he has gone all in on trying to implement his tactics and, at least from my viewpoint, made no effort to change the what I would call a toxic culture at Chelsea Football Club. So I think that's where my diagnosis would be is that the manager has changed but all of the feelings surrounding the club um is largely the same um and i think it plays a big part because obviously they're losing a game like this at home i mean you you want your home fixtures to be you know a fortress right um but they just i mean there's not really a reason for the fans to to produce that kind of atmosphere because they're just consistently largely the same as they were last year. I mean, I mean, we can even look at, I sent a graphic of Potch versus Potter. Largely the same record. Potter actually slightly better. 
Um, so really nothing's changed uh, besides, you know, some outgoings and incomings and maybe some effort to change the tactics. But What's interesting about that is you sent that uh, graphic about them and Potter being in game 23. I'm just looking quickly to see how long Potter actually lasted at Chelsea. He was there for 31 games. So that's actually more than I thought. I kind of thought that that 23 games would have been roughly the threshold where they decided to fire him. But well, fair enough. Reports are coming wasn't... out that Potch cannot be fired because they are in danger of breaching FFP. If <laughs> Which is so funny. Which I don't know if that's true, but if it is, it's the most hilarious thing of all time. So I'm just going to pretend it is true. Because um, that is just terrible, terrible uh, management if, if it's the case. Well, and here's the other thing about their signings. And this this is either this is probably a symptom of the greater problem, which you just described as far as the culture. Um I feel like they signed all of these players with no rhyme or reason. There are there is an enormous volume of new signings who all have, you know, less than a season of impact in the Premier League. You know, even going back all the way to like Mudrik and Enzo Fernandez, who I would say are just now coming up on having been at Chelsea for a full year, as crazy as that seems. Um, but if you, you know, if I asked you to describe to me what is the profile of player that Chelsea wants to sign, I don't think anyone would be able to give you a straight answer on that tactically, stylistically, physically, personality wise. I don't think anybody would be able to tell you an answer to that question. So, that's also part of it. I feel like the strategy was more or less to buy everyone and hope that it worked out. And I think that clearly has not quite been the case. It definitely reeks of the situation where the new owner comes in with this huge vision of, of how to run the club. And he's more or less running the club like a business. You just buy all the best assets and put them together and create synergies and et cetera. But the unfortunate thing about that is that football is not really like every other business in the sense that your main asset, I guess this is true at some businesses, but your main asset is your human capital to the nth, to a much more exponential degree than it is at other businesses. Now, normally you, you would say that about their, in a normal business, that's like your knowledge or expertise, your time spent, you know, in the industry or whatever. In this case, it is so intangible what those things are. It is style. It is tactical fit. It is personality. It is managerial fit. It is even just cohesion in the group. So many different elements that you can't put your finger on. And if you are someone who is trying to enforce a vision upon the group and you have no like possible understanding of what all of those elements mean when they come together. I think this is the result to be honest with you. I mean, I think that the Todd Bowley era is underpinned by the fact that he came in and found this loophole in FFP. And because of that, he was able to sign all these players and amortize their contracts over 50 million years. And therefore they're the greatest team that's ever been assembled because they were able to sign all these players. I mean, at this stage, are they going to recoup their investment on any of them? Is there any single player that they bought in the Todd Bowley era that a team would come in and pay equivalent money to what they bought them for maybe cole palmer and i think that's it yeah genuinely they could make a profit on palmer but i think i mean yeah, i think he's the only player they can't sell exactly and then yeah i mean you even even if even if there were a couple of the minor ones that you could sell on and make a profit on 
what are the losses you're talking about incurring on Mudrick? I mean, what are you incurring on someone like Enzo Fernandez? And listen, I know they're good, you know, they're young players. They still have, you know, great careers ahead of them. But this is so damaging to a young player's reputation to be a part of this toxic, stagnant, treading water, you know, slightly stained ethos of the club. I think this is so damaging to all of their reputations. So, yeah, I, I, it's just a mess of a club. And it's a very multi-layered problem that I think starts at the very top, to be honest with you. So, yeah, more I mean, ownership troubles for Chelsea. I, on top of all of that, I feel like, you know, they ship players out too fast to the point where they can't really develop any pride to represent Chelsea. Like the fact that like, you know, we've got these players who they've spent so much money on, like, you know, they, they still, like we've said, haven't been with the club for too long. So the fact that, you know, as they're playing, you know, we'll see moments of brilliance, but like, you got to want to play and die for the badge. Like I said, you got to die for the badge, got to die, put your life on the line. But you know, some points in the game, you know, some of them just do not look up for it at all. So, yeah. I mean, you see moments of what they could be. Um, take a look at the Cole Palmer goal. Um, I, there was some great buildup play there, but the issue for me is that they, they're never going to generate any kind of consistency with what they want to do because the, the culture and the atmosphere isn't what they need it to be. Um, they can score the greatest goal of all time and it doesn't matter because you know, football is such a mental, there's such a huge mental aspect um, that, you know, you, you can score a great goal, but when it's in the back of your mind that, oh, we've been playing so poorly, we could concede. And then, and then you concede, you know, like it's Wolves at home. It, I mean, you just immediately forget all the good, good stuff you're just doing. Um, one player I wanted to bring up because I just don't know what happened. Like, I feel like we were talking about how good he was at Brighton, and that's Caicedo. He looks, I think it has to be mental, but I just had to bring it up because he genuinely is just, is making terrible, he has terrible decision-making, which for a CDM, I mean, that's, you have to have good decision-making just for one. But, you know, I feel like he was a he was a player that we were consistently talking about how good he was when he was at Brighton, and he is just destroyed his career obviously it's still early days he could save it but not having a good season well and there's been various clips of him giving the ball away and then showing almost no effort to get back and help defensively just very poor body language very poor attitude um obviously not applying himself now granted we have to kind of take into account we never know what's going on in these people's personal lives but still like that it's not a good look for sure and it's definitely not a good look when he's a player. I completely forgot to mention that they spent over a hundred million pounds on. So yeah. um, the yeah. Premier League record fee. Is that true? That's insane. That's actually, I'm, I'm like pretty sure that's true. Cause it was Declan Rice for about a week. I just went and looked to, at their squad at Chelsea squad to see how many of their players were at the club even before the start of last season, out of the 20-man squad, so 11 starters and nine subs, three, three players were here at the start of last season. That is absolutely mind-boggling. That's, that's who? Tiago Silva, Gallagher, and... Chilwell. Yeah. And Chilwell, okay, Tiago Silva counts. That's a good, you know, he counts. Gallagher, yeah, he was 
there, but he was out on loan for two seasons pre- previously to that. So he hasn't even been around the dressing room. And then Chilwell's been injured half his career at Chelsea. So that doesn't even, <laughs> that hardly counts either. Um, how are and you Reece, supposed to- Reece James too, I guess, would count. Well, well, sure, but he wasn't in this. I'm saying in the in this match day squad, the oh, gotcha. eleven starters in the nine gotcha. century. Um, but it's like Ethan said, they have no idea what it means to play for Chelsea. There's <laughs> there's been such turnover in the squad. There's no one in the dressing room who knows what it means to be a Chelsea player. Um, so just yeah, just bizarre stuff from them. Long may it continue, as far as I'm concerned, but um, definitely not if you're a Chelsea fan. So. We yeah. do need to drop a line on Wolves as far as Mateus Cunha, who has picked up his first Premier League hat trick. And quietly, again, Wolves with an impressive display against another one of the big boys. They've now beaten Spurs. Uh, they've beaten Chelsea. I believe they've beaten United. And I think I'm forgetting someone else. Um, but they know what it means to play for the shirt. A hundred percent. You, I mean, you know what Wolves are when you're coming up against them. Um Players with 100% effort. I mean, I'm looking at the likes of Craig Dawson, who was in our underappreciated team uh, of the season for some of us. I'm looking at the likes of Mario Lamina, of Pedro Neto, guys who just embody the ethos of Wolves right now and who uh, are all playing extremely well. So, And I mean, th- this is just like celebrations, but like, you know, they were celebrating with the fans. Cunha, when he scored a side trick, was tapping the badge. And I'm like, that's what gets you going as a team, but also gets the fans on your side and gets them yeah. cheering you and stuff like that. It takes I'd be curious way. to know from a Wolves fan perspective, if this is the kind of play they were expecting this year, because obviously we were all very down on them at the start of the season and they've just continued to de- defy all of our expectations. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that was just an outsider looking in perspective or if the sentiment was um, similar, um, you know, close to the club, but, you know, credit to them. Well, they can't have been feeling too good at the beginning of the season because Lopetegui obviously departed, you know, less than a week before the season began. And then all these uh, sort of documents being released about how they had too much debt at the club. They were too leveraged to uh, to make transfers. And so they didn't really sign any big players this season. They still haven't, you know, to this day. I believe they brought in Mario Lamina's brother uh, on loan from PSG, which is a kind of a good, a feel-good signing. And then they made a couple loans in the summer, um, Tommy Doyle, Jean Rickner, Belgard, and Santiago Bueno, but no major incomings. The bones of that squad were all there last season and before that. Um, and then Gary O'Neill has obviously done a, a, an exceptional job to to step in. And um, what a what a a good kind of spur of the moment decision by uh, the Wolves board to bring O'Neill in after what happened at Bournemouth. Um, you you could definitely say that's a risk, given that he didn't actually technically have a full time Premier League job on his CV, but. Um, yeah, really good, really good appointment by them and, and good stuff from Gary O'Neill. So that's a wrap on Wolves. And that brings us uh, to the final game of the weekend, the blockbuster, if you will, which was uh, the Photography Fest, which I mentioned previously at the beginning of the show, which saw Arsenal earning a victory against Liverpool. I'm going to call it an unexpected victory, not in the sense that I thought Arsenal were or I didn't expect Arsenal to win, but unexpected in the sense of how dominant they truly were. Yeah, it was incredibly dominant performance. And I, I will first drop a line because I may be saying excuse is harsh, but I've been seeing Liverpool fans give excuses, which I which I want to say I think are partially valid in that they had some key players missing. Obviously, we benefit a lot from Salah not being available for this game. 
We benefit from Darwin Nunez having to come off on the bench really late into this game. We benefit from no Dominic Schubert's lie in the side for this game. Schubert. So <laughs> Dominic Schubert. Um <laughs> Obviously, these are these are three important players, but at the same time, obviously we didn't have as many, but we had Jesus get injured leading up to this game. So we're we're going into with Kai Havertz up top, which we did in the FA Cup fixture, um, which we did lose, but I think you know we looked good in. Um, and obviously we have some other players who continue and party got re-injured timber obviously continues to be out of, out of the side. Um, but you know, you look at some of the players they brought in to replace those players, Diego Jota can consistently does very well against us. Um, and yeah, just was, was nowhere in this game. I think, you know, a couple of key things to note, obviously some of it's not doesn't paint the whole picture, but I think it's uh, it paints some kind of picture, and that's the XG for both sides. I think um, this was the most XG Liverpool have conceded um, this season, maybe even going further back, um, and at the same time was the least amount that they have generated, I think, this season. Um, I think it was less than a goal of XG. It was like point something that they had. They really never looked like scoring. We were so strong defensively. And I think in this type of game, that's really where you need to start from. If you have a good defense, then there's always the chance that you could nick one goal and win. Because if you can, if you can keep their score line down, and obviously we had that kind of freak goal in there, but if you keep it down, then, you know, that's where you build from. Uh, and I think largely this season, that's been one of our strongest aspects. Where we've struggled a little bit is uh, is uh, taking chances from open play, which I think in this game was a little bit better. Um, I wanted to touch on Havertz at center forward because we did it in the FA Cup game, like I mentioned, but it's really an interesting thing because he's not quite playing the same center forward role that he was like at Chelsea, where he's you know kind of playing an out and out striker. In this game, it was more like a 4-2-4 where our two strikers are actually sitting really deep and they're both center forwards and those would be Odegaard and Havertz. Um, and I think what that allows is, one, it puts more focus on our wingers, which I think is important because both our wingers are, are pretty good players, right? We've got Sokka on the right, Martinelli on the left, who Martinelli also just genuine generally plays really well against Liverpool. Um, they're one of his favorite opponents um, statistically. Uh, but also when you're playing a team like Liverpool, who we know like to one invert their fullback on the right side with Trent and two have an injury issue at left back and are playing Joe Gomez. That's where the space is going to be is on the wing. So when you're, when you're dropping your two center forward players, a little bit deeper to create space on the wing, but also, you know, make late runs like we saw with the first goal where Havertz, you know, we, we pass around and Havertz is just able to get a clear in run behind. Doesn't finish, which isn't that surprising. Um, but, you know, we it, it falls to Saka who's able to put it away. That that was where the space was on the wings. And we saw um, Martinelli have a good game, obviously getting a goal later, which was also a freak goal, I would say. But I think, uh, you know, it kind of cancels each other out. This Hammurabi's law. <laughs> exactly. If you want to take away these two freak goals for each side, it ends as a 2-0 as a, a win, which I think is probably more appropriate. But um, 
yeah, I think, you know, credit to Havertz. I think that's also just statistically, it's a good statistical choice from uh, Arteta going into this game. Um, what else did I have? The other player I wanted to touch on, two players actually. One, uh, Kivior, who was introduced at halftime uh, for Sinchenko, which at first I thought was tactical because he's just more of a defensive-minded player, but I think Sinchenko actually felt a little bit of an injury. Um, but, you know, he came in, left-back's not Kivior's natural position. I thought he did a good job. Um, obviously, we ended very well defensively in this game, um, so no issues there. The other player, Jorginho, I think that has quietly been a player that we really robbed Chelsea of because I mean they don't they don't have the same profile in the sense of that kind of I mean we just talked about players that have been there for a while but also leader, leadership type players they don't have that same leader that same calming presence I would say someone who's just been playing for a while an older presence right um but you know for him to come into this game against informed Liverpool and get man get a man of the match performance is just really great um I think he he consistently has been a good performer for us, a great pickup last uh, last January, I would say, um, for really cheap. Um, and was that last January or was that the summer before? I can't remember. No, it, anyway. it was January. Yeah, I think he had a really good game and it, it worked especially well because if we're going to play this type of, you know, how I described a 4-2-4 where um, Odegaard and Havertz are playing more as center forwards, having a double pivot instead of a true out and out six of Rice and Jorginho works really well um, because I think they both have that experience of playing out and out six and also playing box to box type of role. Um, but yeah, I was really happy with the performance. I think it was, it was much needed win as well to keep us in the paddle race. Obviously um, Liverpool, you know, we're very informed. Man City have a couple of games in hand. I think this win definitely benefited Man City, which is disappointing. But, it, you know, it is it is what it is. But, uh, yeah, I'm super happy with it. I wanted to mention this uh, weird obsession from Jamie Carragher and other pundits on the way we celebrate wins. Uh, it's so weird to me. Um, get a real job, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Carragher is so <laughs> fake. Like, we've just beaten Liverpool in an extremely dominant performance in a must-win game to keep the title charge alive. And it wasn't even, like, excessive. It, it was, we're at home, too. It's not like this was at Anfield and we're doing this, right? We're at home, and, you know, Odegaard decides to have a nice moment with our club photographer of 20 years, by the way. He's been there 20 years, so it's not like it's some random guy. That Didn't he give us. a speech? Uh, yes. Yeah. He gave a speech before the Northland and Derby um, last year, like in the dressing room, because everyone loves him. It's like a much beloved figure at the club. Uh, it's just weird behavior from Carragher. I think he was just upset, and now it's kind of <laughs> turned into a meme that he's rolling with. But um, yeah, it just it just baffles me this obsession with celebrations. Yeah, I, uh, as a reformed former member of the Celebration Police, I'm uh, <laughs> I'm on your side on this one. I think Carragher just needs to chill the hell out. Uh, it's it's fine. So, uh, the, the fact that you've got the likes of Trossard, I'm super jealous. Super of because, sub. Yeah, because yeah. he 
he honestly can come on and play just as well sometimes, even better sometimes. Yeah. I mean, the goal was a little fortunate when you take a take a look at how it went in. Obviously, slight defection, deflection from Van Dyke, but you know, him coming off the bench um and consistently being able to be a super sub for us is just so great. Especially when you look at what we got him for in the market. I think it was a little less than 30 million for he's not even that old. He's like 28, I think. Um especially especially when you consider the alternative was paying 100 million for mudrick because that was that was why we bought him we were going to sign mudrick and then they just wanted too much money and he signed for chelsea um so we definitely i would say got the the um the better deal there for sure but yeah super happy with him as well um yeah really shrewd bit of business when you look at last january with uh the trossard and Jorginho deals one thing this result does do, especially from the neutral perspective, is uh, it really, I think, adds another level of intrigue into the title race. Because if you look at it right now, it genuinely looks like a full-on three-way title race uh, for this season. So where are where are we at in terms of the Arsenal-o-meter, uh, in terms of title chances, contention for the title? Obviously in third right now, but only two points off top. City are tied with you on points, but have a game in hand. So what is the, yeah, give me the reading on the arsenal meter Yeah, I think given the fact of that City at any moment can just go unbeaten for the rest of the year, um, <laughs> and they have Holland back, and they have De Bruyne back, I think City, I, I could see them not losing another game. Um, but at the same time, it, I think genuinely, I think it entirely depends on whether or not they drop points. Because... I think we can generate some momentum from this win and go on a, a good unbeaten run ourselves. But we it, we are at a point now where we were not only City, we require Liverpool to drop points as well because we're still uh, two points behind Liverpool. So um, I think, you know, if I had to give a prediction of where we're going to finish right now, I'd probably say second place. I think we might finish the year a little bit better than Liverpool, but I, I genuinely think City won't lose another game. Um, but I think anything can happen. Anything can happen. And the point that I made previously about how I chose Liverpool as my winner, this, uh, Premier League winner, I think we did that on the podcast where we talked about our team of the seasons. If I don't, or if I'm not recalling that correctly, I think that's true. Uh, at that time, we still hadn't found out that Liverpool were going to be doing the no Salah gambit for, uh, you know, two plus months. So I think that actually could be a, a very damaging factor to their title chances. And at this moment, I'm inclined to agree with you as far as the order of city first, Arsenal second, Liverpool third. I'm somewhat inclined to agree with that at the moment. So I will say Robertson, I think was on the bench for this game. So he should be back. He was. Yeah. Uh, which I think is good. I think Joe Gomez, I think is a good player, but he's not a fullback and you can tell, um, they definitely need Robertson back in that position. Well, this is not related to anything we were just talking about, but I just discovered this by poking around on the Premier League website. Uh, apparently, Mickey Van de Ven broke the record for the fastest speed ever in the history of the Premier League against really? Brentford. Yeah. Uh, 22, I believe it. He's crazy fast. 22.4 miles per hour recorded on a sprint, which is insane. I mean, that's like a car in a school zone. That's ridiculous. So, yeah, yeah crazy stuff for him. from him. Um, yeah, 
probably not often you see a center back be the fastest player ever in a league, but uh, he's a freak of nature for sure. So apparently the speed that he broke the record at is not even his top speed ever because he had a higher speed last season in the Bundesliga at 23.1 miles per hour. So uh, he still has more to give apparently. So just a crazy thing that I just kind of stumbled upon uh, on the Premier League website. But I think that will uh, conclude proceedings for the evening. I, I do want to do a Leicester check, and I meant to do this before, but I'm now going to check to see uh, what's going on with them. The key thing they, for them actually was – go ahead. Well, I was just going to say they, they beat Stoke 5-0, so that was a pretty big result. Indeed. I know, Josh, the thing Gabe was going to bring it up, but the bigger thing is that Ipswich have dropped out of automatic. Is that what you were going to say? Well, yes, and that combined with – Southampton actually now look like the biggest threat uh, to not only, you know, uh, finish in that second automatic promotion spot, but they could be an outside shout to uh, pass Leicester up for the title in the championship. I don't expect that to happen because Leicester are currently 11 points clear. Southampton do have a game in hand, but um, yeah, Leicester continue on their good path as far as the championship is concerned. And I have no doubt we'll see them in the Premier again next season. I was kind of hoping that it wouldn't be Southampton, Leicester, Southampton, and Leeds that come back up. But at the moment, Leeds are on a run of five undefeated. They're in third. Southampton on a run of four in their last five. They're in second. And Leicester, obviously, are running away with things at the top. So it does kind of look like that might be the case. Ipswich, of course, have dropped down to fourth place, which they won't be happy about. Um, but yeah, that's our little championship roundup for the week in honor of the missing man. So... That will bring our football-related proceedings to the close. We are, of course, uh, without jo uh, yeah, without Josh, so we're without a jersey of the week, but that will not slow our progress on the album of the week. For sure, for sure. I picked this album, I think it was last season or so, but uh, I didn't own it on record, but I am going with The Clash's London Calling. Uh, what a classic punk album. Uh, I think it's a good point. Uh, in the season to be listening to punk because it just exemplifies all the rage and and the the grunginess that you know palace fans experience so it's definitely identify with what they're saying but yeah nothing to london is calling for roy to be sacked yeah Lo uh london is drowning and i live by the river quoted from uh <laughs> the song but uh gage do a do a tattoo of the week how about that <laughs> wait this will last for two weeks um let's go with my uh the first one my first ever tattoo which is the glyph of the wind runner from uh brandon sanderson's stormlight archive which i'm now going to pick up a book to show you uh the elements of of this well, tattoo well he does that i you know i think you know everyone in the group pretty much at one point said they wanted a tattoo except me but i've been more of a fan recently i feel like there's some cool tattoos out there i just need to get money for it so you can see the representation of the tattoo there on the backs of the leather-bound edition so cool. I'm so of jealous. the Way of Kings, which is so sick. The box set also has the Knight's Radiant emblem on uh, on the side, which is very cool. They were a gift from my girlfriend, Carolyn, so shout out to you. Um, she doesn't listen, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that is my tattoo of the week. We got one more week of that. If uh, if we need it, so, <laughs> you gotta keep getting more. Other than that, I know I need to get more tattoos. Every week. I actually, I'm in the market. I just need to decide what I'm gonna get next. But 
I believe that brings the entire show to its end, gentlemen. So a huge thanks to Reese for coming on, eschewing some wisdom for us, and uh, generally being interesting. <laughs> thanks, Reese. Uh, Pepper is my other dog is freaking out. Dog, yeah, do dog of the week. She's throwing a fit in the living room. Um, I think Bella's gonna no. I'll, Pepper Pepper takes dog of the week. We found out she's a heart murmur, which is sad, but oh. it's a low scale, you know. Scale of one to six, that said a one. So, um, but she'll she'll win dog of the week. Um, Even though she peed on your floor three times, she did pee on my floor three times and poop upstairs early this week. Um, she's winning it by default. Bella is <laughs> in the background, as you can tell. Absolutely irate. Um, anyway, that cold was a shoulder. Weird... <laughs> yeah, cold shoulder. Um, thank you for hosting. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Ethan, not only joining us and uh, giving us his usual knowledge, but also deputizing for Josh in many aspects. So thank you, Ethan. Of course. I'm glad we all got the gray memo uh, to wear <laughs> yeah, gray today. Indeed. But yeah, I'm glad to be here, uh, even though I'm feeling a bit under the weather, not just because Palace, but allergies have been killing me. And so you might have heard my voice fuck up a few times during the podcast, <laughs> but yeah. And of course, a big thanks to the listeners for coming along once again. We hope you enjoyed our return to what I would say semi-normal Premier League action once again, a full game week of 10 games. And uh, so it will be for the next, for the coming weeks. And we hope you uh, really enjoy our journey through that part of the season. So big thanks to everyone for coming on. We hope you stay safe and stay healthy. And it's a goodbye from us.